Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, Grammy-nominated vocalist from New York, New York, Kavita Shah. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Miss Kavita Shah with us. Ma'am, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, please give a short intro about yourself, and then we got to get into this. Okay, um, so as you said, my name is Kavita. I'm a singer, composer, uh, teacher, researcher, producer, and uh, I'm originally from New York City. I was born and raised in New York. And um, I, you had asked me about my studies, so I did my undergraduate at Harvard College in Cambridge. Um, I studied Latin American studies, and I started working there on um, ethnomusicology research. I lived in Brazil in a city called Salvador de Bahia, and I did research on Afro-Brazilian music and culture. And then um, I decided I really wanted to do the jazz thing and I wanted to, you know, um, become a, a professional musician. I wanted to pursue that path. So I went back to school a few years later. I did my master's in jazz voice at Manhattan School of Music. And I have been working um, as a singer, a band leader, recording artist for um, more than a little more than a decade now um, in with a base in the world of jazz, but with um, a lot of influences and work and continued research in music from the global South, especially West Africa, India, and uh, and Brazil. Wow. So one thing I always am curious about, why do so many of the Ivy League people like to come into jazz? Are there a lot of Ivy League people that go into jazz? I mean, on the show, I swear like 15% of the guests, if not 20, okay. came from the Ivy Leagues. Oh, that's interesting. I don't, um, I, you know, I haven't even heard that. I've been travel. I've been in Africa for a few months and I haven't even heard that term Ivy League for a long time. So it's kind of taking me back to, to another place and time. Um, it's a beautiful accomplishment. That's why I teased it. It's cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't know uh, an answer to that question, but I do think that um, uh, we're passionate people probably. And uh, that's, that's true as well of, of musicians. And um, I definitely felt that going to a place like Harvard, um, I had a, had a scholarship, you know, it was a, obviously a, a dream of mine to go there. And I worked really hard to get there. But once I was actually there um, and I met these wonderful people from around the world, I thought that I also had a responsibility to do something with that education. In other words, um, not just to go back and do sort of an average job, um, but I felt like this was a, a a responsibility and also like a call to um, 
do something meaningful, do something impactful and do something that I felt I could have the most impact in, um, on others, um, in service. Like I just went to my, uh, 15 year college reunion. And, uh, one of the things that really struck me about all the people I went to school with is a lot of people are focused on this question of service and serving others and doing something, um, for humanity, using your skill set, um, intelligence, hard work, um, uh, resourcefulness for the better of the world. And for me, the best way I can give to others, um, is, is through music and through my music. So that's my answer. Oh, that's great. I mean, I'm jealous of you in a lot of ways. I'm slacking as an artist because as a percussionist, I'm supposed to do the ABCs, Africa, uh -huh. Brazil, and Cuba. <laughs> I, I'm slacking there. Okay. I also don't speak nine languages like you. So that's an amazing feat that I should yeah. be more on, especially if I'm trying to be a global percussionist. So <laughs> first of all, what are the nine languages? Well, music is a language also. Yeah, 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 yeah. That don't count. <laughs> um, yes, I, I do love languages. So I studied, uh, started back in high school and in college, but, um, I'm the languages are Spanish, Portuguese, French, Cape Verdean, Creole, Italian, uh, Yoruba, Gujarati, Hindi, obviously English. And I hope I didn't forget one. How did you get into Yoruba? Uh, when I was living in Brazil, the work that I was doing there was, uh, around the candomblé tradition and music that derived from candomblé. Candomblé is a religion, an Afro-Brazilian religion, where they preserved all these rhythms from West Africa, from um, the Yoruba tradition. And in the ceremonies, they speak in like a 17th century Yoruba. Um, and just in the city of Salvador, there are a lot of Yoruba words like ashe that are a part of the culture. So um, as part of my research, it felt only natural to to learn Yoruba. And a lot of my friends in college were also Yoruba. So that's how it happened. Okay. No, seriously, that's amazing. <laughs> well, <laughs> one thing I just also want to say is, because people, this is like my third time rescheduling this poor lady because of stuff on my end. So once again, thank you for being here and giving me this interview. No I, worries. I was traveling a lot as well on tour. And so it, it worked out better. And one reason why I kept making sure I rescheduled is I did love the album. Thank you very much. Your opening track and your fifth track were my favorites. So people make sure you check out those albums. I mean, the album and those tracks. But what made you actually want to do something like this? Because I, li I literally enjoyed it from start to finish. And then Thank your you. last track threw me off because I'm like, she literally did a vocal percussionist to my boy's song. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, uh, the, for those who don't know, my new album, it's called Cape Verdean Blues. Uh, it's an album of traditional music from Cape Verde, West Africa, an island nation in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. Um, I, when I was living in Brazil, I got to see the legend Cesaria Evera perform. She was a great world music singer. And, and I mean, we're talking legend. She played in stadiums across Europe. She sold out a stadium in, in Siberia, 
like this woman from the middle of the Atlantic. Um, and a lot of people in America don't know her because unfortunately in America, we don't have a strong world music uh, presence and, and community, but she's a star. She was a superstar. And uh, I got to see her perform and she had something so authentic um, with how she performed. She would go on stage with whiskey. She would go barefoot. Um, and she just had this way about her that was not overly entertaining. It was just sort of embodying the songs and so unique. So hearing her sing, that really uh, changed my life. And I said, one day in the back of my head, one day I'm going to go to where she's from. I'm going to learn this music. I'm going to understand this place because there was something here I needed to discover. I needed to know. And uh, she ended up um, passing away before I got there, but I went in 2016 and I ended up meeting all of her um, closest collaborators, including her guitarist, Bao, who is the leading guitarist of Cape Verde. Um, he's in his early 60s now and He's just a master. So getting to work with him was an amazing experience. And I never thought one day I'm going to record this album, but um, it just sort of happened naturally over time at this place I love with these musicians that I loved. And finally, um, you know, after learning the music and studying the music and going very deep into the music, I had some grants that funded my trips there. Um, I we kind of recorded for fun and we thought it was going to be two, three songs. And then very quickly it was 10 songs and then very quickly it became an album. So then I spent about five years in production on it, refining and yes. I'm a perfectionist. So that is my, maybe my Harvard part of me. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's okay. how the album came about. And you said you like tracks one and five. So yes. those are, Angola. Number one is Angola, mm -hmm. and number five is Amor de Mundo. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. And those are also very heavy percussion tracks because we have a wonderful percussionist named Miroka Paris who also toured for many years with Cesaria. So um, it just came about very naturally, very organically, and uh, and I couldn't be prouder of it. I worked really like every decision of where there's percussion, where there's not percussion where there's the, I mean, I, I drove myself nuts. I drove my poor engineer, Jeremy nuts, but I'm so proud of the, the result. It's, it's beautiful music. And of course you have the, my approach to it, even though I learned the tradition is of course, as a jazz musician. So it's kind of like my approach is to immerse in something, to learn something and to imitate it. But then ultimately when I make it my own, of course, I bring improvisation into the mix. I bring my own phrasing. I bring my own understanding, which which comes from the jazz tradition. So that's what you hear in Cape Verde and no, Blues. I love you answered two of my other questions anyway, like how you oh, make yeah? your guitars ba, because he was outstanding. And yes, me being a loser, I was really digging the percussion. That's another reason why I had no problem hearing it from start to finish. So that's great. And really recording on three continents. That's not something people could do, really do. <laughs> so, 
Well, we have to because that's where Bao was and that's where I had gone. I mean, part of recording was I didn't know when I was going to be back, which was very fortuitous because it was before COVID. And so we thought, oh, well, we got to kind of bottle this up now because I don't know how long it's going to be before we see each other again. And um, then I happened to be on tour in Europe a few months later. So we were able to meet in Lisbon to finish the main part of the recording. And then I finished everything with um, Jeremy Lucas at Steer Sound in, in New York, so um, which is where I lived. So it ended up being a three-part thing. But the cool thing was the vocals were recorded mostly in Cape Verde. And I don't think I could have gotten those same vocals here because I was so in the atmosphere. I was so in the environment. Um, Did you have a coach during that time or was it just all you? No. Oh, nice. <laughs> for this kind of music. This kind of music is not something you can um, study in that way. It's really about feeling. It's about tradition. It's an oral tradition, you know. So in that way, you don't have... Um, it's not about the technique as much as it is about understanding the feeling. And uh, actually the best coach was the island. You know, it was um, being able to go in the ocean an hour before I went to the studio and feeling the island, feeling the place. Um, and Bao himself, I would say, is, is, is you know, a, a huge mentor of mine. He very rarely would criticize anything I sang, but every now and then he'd say, oh, just pronounce this word a little differently or, you know, end this phrase a little bit earlier because he's the master of, of the Morna, which is one of the main traditions that, that we perform. So uh, he knows that tradition very well and he knows his language very well and how something should be sung. So there were a few pointers here and there that he would give me, but um, it's really something that I had to understand and feel and find my own way into. Okay. Like I said, I really have no complaints or anything smart to say about this. I just more curious about you being taught at Manhattan School of Music, Great Conservatory, versus the real world of recording. How was that experience? And how do you professors uh, take this, these projects you're doing? Because yeah, it's been a long time since I was in school. You know, I graduated in 2012. So, um, I feel most of my school has been, has been in the real world. And, um, I, this is my third album. Mm -hmm. So, and I've done, you know, a lot of recordings with other people. So it's, it's, um, obviously not the same as being in school, but I, I think I did my first, first recordings already when I was in school. Um, I love being in the studio. I love the pressure. Um, and the feeling of Wait, creating. You actually love the pressure? I do. Oh, I see. I went in studios with people who like, how should I say it? They caved. They had to leave. They couldn't handle it. So you're pretty much. Why, Why is that? Okay. Uh, people sometimes think they're better than they really are. Because, mm. you know, when you practice a dry run, a lot of people aren't really blowing hard. They're just getting the chart down. See, this is what they're going to do here and all that stuff. Then they get into the actual recording room in the booth and then bam, these guys outclass them. 
So they think they have a great solo in mind. I see. I yeah. see. That's not what they want. You're not the and star of the album. Yes. Um, I don't know. Why do I like it so much? I'll give you what I, I, I hear that. I understand that. And I know a lot of people feel that way. I somehow am able to put off that voice until after. After I can say what I feel or don't feel, but somehow in the studio, it's like similar to how I feel on stage where you feel like anything's possible. And uh, the pressure that I like is um, if you perform a song or if you rehearse it, you just sort of have one time to do it versus in the studio, you know, you can... I feel like I, with the pressure, I unlock things that I'm meant to understand about that particular experience in a way that if there weren't pressure, I wouldn't, I would never get to that place. So I could be like, okay, I just did one take and now very quickly I have to adjust and understand what do I want to do differently? What didn't work? Um, or what did I like or what was like really working? And I feel like that opens for me an, an, a like h- highest level of creativity. It's it's like you're a painter and you get to make something really quickly. Um, and you have to sort of think on your toes and and adjust. And uh, I don't know, I feel like it, it opens a lot of creativity for me. It opens a lot of possibility. Okay, I mean... I know a lot of people don't like it. I love no, it. No, 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 that's cool. I like more of a... If you ever were to listen to my stuff, I like live settings more where I just throw them all and then record it on one take. That's me. I understand people who like to chop it up and do all that stuff. I mean, that's what most of pop music is nowadays anyway. I like both. I mean, I like both. You know, I love performing live. Mm-hmm. and uh, But I, it's just a different beast. And it's a different challenge. Fair on that. Another thing I want to go back to is when you say you are making fun of Americans and their world music, mm-hmm. their lack of appreciation. I wasn't making fun of anybody. I was just saying that there, I mean, there isn't really a world a music market in the United States. It's very small. I agree with so you on that. But you have someone yeah. like Cesaria Evera, who, you know, people like Madonna or the King of Spain, or she's like, she was like a celebrity. They would go to her dressing rooms that, you know, they, everybody thinks of her. If you mention her name in Europe, everybody knows who she is, you know? And I find in the U S I do find people that come to my shows, for example, or that like the album know her, of course, because they find out about this music and they like it and they were her diehard fans, but I have to educate a lot of people about who she was. And, um, and it just, it's just funny. It's just interesting. Um, and the same is true for jazz, unfortunately. Um, we're a country that this is our indigenous art form, our indigenous music form. Everything else, blues, rock, you know, comes from jazz. But we don't teach our young people to really own that and value it where there's so much richness and there's so much history uh, within the jazz tradition. So, you know, um, but question, I would love to see, I would love to see more valorization of culture, uh, in, in this country. If your kid 
why would you want to be a jazz artist when you could just download a hip hop beat, rap over it, and probably get more downloads or streams than a jazz artist? That's fair. I mean, I grew up listening to hip hop, you know, I, I listened to hip hop before I listened to jazz. I, when I was nine years old, I used to listen to Hot 97. Um, I was really into Notorious B.I.G. I mean, I grew up in the 90s in New York. And so first, why do young people like jazz? I don't like I don't know why I was 10, 11 years old and really into early big bands and early Ella and uh, at the same time as I was listening to to hip hop. So first is that these are not mutually exclusive things. It's not that it's one or the other. I understood. I'm not saying and, that. And second is, um, is well, I'm trying to answer your question. Uh, um, <laughs> why would somebody want to do that? Um, yeah, uh, maybe they can get more streams, but... Um, I think we're talking about two different things because you're talking about the commerce, but I'm just talking about appreciation and valorization. So if this were taught more in schools, if more young people knew about what jazz is, um, then of course they can make their own decisions about what kind of music they want to make. Or, But I'm talking about the average person. Then we would have an audience. Like in the US, when you go to a jazz show, audiences tend to be much older, uh, grayer. And um, if we don't, you know, impart this to younger people, we won't have an audience in 20, 30 years. I seriously believe that. We won't have an audience in 20 to 30 years. Because like you said, those are older people who probably were born, I mean, were probably teenagers in the late 70s, early 80s. Finding someone under 30 in the jazz club is, yeah, a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. But one other thing I just want there to say. Spaces, you know, I just played at Mesro last weekend. <clears throat> there are a lot of young people in the audience. And that's one thing I love about that place, Mesro and Smalls. Um, they are cultivating uh, a young audience and people know those bosses a cool place to hang out and you get a lot of people that may not be aware of the scene, but come out because they want to go out to a jazz club or they want to go to a date at a jazz club. And that's very exciting to me. So it is happening in some doses and in some places. I just tell people don't bring a date to a jazz club on your first date. That's something (laughs) I highly recommend. (laughs) from experience. But one thing I do want to also point out is I actually knew you from Miho's album. So congratulations. Yes. The one you got a Grammy nomination for. Thank you. How did you get that gig? Um, Miho and I are, we went to school together at Manhattan School of Music. Um, We um, have always been close collaborators since our days in school. Um, collaborating on each other's projects. Um, She wrote some music for voice back in just after we went out of school. And that is eventually what what, um, we recorded on the album. And uh, she conducted strings on my first album, Visions. I had a string quartet for a few tracks and 
conducted that. And uh, Lionel, we actually worked together with him on my album, who produced that album, uh, Lionel Luecke. So um, when she was recording her album, she also invited him to play on a track um, that I was singing on. So there was that connection as well. Um, and my upcoming album that will be released probably in 25, 2025, I recorded an album with my jazz quintet mm-hmm. and, um, and Miho co-produced that with me. So we've been ping-ponging back on each other's projects and she's just a, a close friend, a close collaborator, obviously goes without saying that she's an amazing composer and amazing musician. And um, she's just someone who's very close to me as a collaborator and as someone who I trust. Yeah. I'm listen, I'm looking forward to that next album just off that. Okay. Thank you. Oh, and I, I have to say about her album, I love singing her music because the way she writes for the voice, not just for the voice, the way she writes music, mm-hmm. she really writes for each individual player. So um you can feel that it's really it it like fits me like a glove, you know. Um, yeah. sometimes when you work with different composers, you should tell them, oh, well, this is not in my range or this is not, whereas you feel like she knows exactly who I am and where my sweet spot is. And she writes to those strengths and she does that for everybody in the band. So it's a, a huge privilege and an honor to, to get to work with someone like that. Yeah. Like I said, I love her arrangements and literally yeah. someone told me to watch the movie Bella for the jazz arrangements in it. So once again, great job. I get in that one. So is it the same band on your first two albums that's pretty much going to be on this new album? Um, so I have three albums. Um, this is the third one, but I assume, right? Meridian Blues is the third one. And then my quintet album, when it comes out, will be the fourth one. Yes. Um, so the first album, Visions, it has 14 musicians on it. It has a string quartet. Uh, special guests like Lionel Lueke, Steve Wilson. Steve is playing on on the quintet album as well, um, and then um, and then a, a jazz quintet, but different musicians: uh, Linda O, oh, um, Mikael Valiano, Guillaume Fluza, Steve Newcomb. Um, my second album is a duo bass and voice album um, called Interplay. That's with Francois Mouton, and. Um, we also have special guests, Sheila Jordan and um, uh, Marcial Solal on it. So two 90-year-old amazing jazz masters. And uh, Francois also plays in my quintet album. And the quintet album is going to be, obviously, the Cape Verdean albums with Cape Verdean masters. So it's, yes, not, I understand with, that. Yeah. it's not with jazz musicians um, in the same arena. And then uh, my uh, the new quintet album, it's with... Frank Namath on the drums, Francois Mouton on the bass, um, Leo Genovese on the piano, Juan Choirera on the guitar. Uh, I'm singing, obviously. I've written the compositions. Um, Steve Wilson plays sax on one track, and Miguel Zanon plays sax on another track. Okay. Now, what is something that people misunderstand about the music world? The music world, uh, people think it's very glamorous um, because, you know, uh, they'll just assume that I'm traveling all the time or um, that you get to dress up and do this 
you know, fun thing on stage. Um, but uh, the reality of touring is really exhausting. Um, the reality of work, I mean, I should churn, churn my uh, uh, screen down to show you my desk, but like the amount of stuff that we have to do as artists, um, booking and I mean, I, even when you work with people, you have a manager, you have a team, still kind of like taking care of your admin stuff. It's running a business, you know, social media, um, teaching, um, doing different projects, with different people, doing interviews with wonderful uh, podcasts like like yours. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of this nonstop job where you wear twenty hats: finances, accounting. Uh, I can go on and on. So um, I I think I posted a, a video when I was in. Portugal of, you know, the reality of touring, because I was in between two TV interviews, which obviously is to some degree glamorous, but I mean, you spend your whole day, you know, it's like an hour to do makeup and an hour and hair, and then you go in and you're in for it and then you move and then quickly go to the next thing. And we had to wait in a supermarket um, well, before we went up for the next interview. So I just took this video. I was like all made up. Wait, wait, yeah, then, why were you in the supermarket? Did it, it was the smallest TV studio. Like they couldn't put you in a. No, it just, we, we were early for the next interview for the next station. So, um, that's, you know, we just had to get a coffee and that was the place. It was raining, you know, and oh. it was just downstairs. We didn't have to, it was in a, a huge building. So we didn't have to go anywhere. And, yeah. And I said, you know, sometimes people think being on the road is really glamorous. Sometimes you end up in a supermarket in the middle of the afternoon. Nah, touring out. sucks. A lot of people came out here and said it. It's all right. You could say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. But um, it. I think people think that it's a lot glamorous than it is. But, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into it as well. It's a dream. And it's a dream for, I think, a lot of musicians. But the reality of it is... Uh, you're constantly tired. You don't sleep a lot. You're away from your family. You're away from your friends. Uh, you can't show up to things in people's lives like birthday parties. And um, if there's a lot of, of you're alone a lot of the time, um, the actual part of playing a show is a, is a short part of it. So um, I, it's a life that I've chosen. It's a life that I enjoy and that works for me but uh, it's really not for everybody. And I think people assume you're living your dream and I am, but people assume that, you know, <laughs> it's just like roses all the time. And I think they don't see the amount of, I think a really good performer, um, you know, you're seeing what you see is like the little thing, the little icing on the cake at the end of the, presentation um but you don't see the amount of hard work that goes into it the amount of effort the amount of sacrifice and so i think sometimes that's frustrating for me that you know um it seems easy from the outside nah, but there's like an iceberg i'm gonna actually say because this is a question i always ask uh what is something you hate about the jazz world or the music world um it's it's really macho um it's um, it's dominated by men. It's dominated mostly by white men. 
especially in the United States, um, the people who are deciding who are being reviewed, who are getting certain concerts, you know, it's a very homogenous circle. And, um, and I think that needs to change. Um, because that doesn't reflect the music that doesn't reflect who's playing it. And okay. obviously now uh, I gotta be that- the bad guy on the other side on that. But isn't it white people or white males who are pretty much buying the most and supporting it the most? I don't know the statistics on that. So I okay, can't no answer- we'll drop it. <laughs> I can't answer you. No, no, uh, I can't answer you, but I, I think there needs to be more space for, um, women and people of color to be represented. And I think given that it's a black American music, um, it would be nice to have that be more centered in, um, in the industry. Okay. Well, I know you got to leave. I'm going to get you out of here soon, but I just have to ask this one other, two other things. And then I'll let you go. Okay. So if you could turn back the time, would you talk yourself out of being a jazz artist? Like, would you no. have kept... Okay. She said no right away, people. There are people That's who come quick, on and say yes, just so you know. But I've been getting a lot of no's recently. That's a quick answer um, for me because I love what I do. Uh, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's the best way I know how to give and receive love. And uh, it feels like it was what I was here to to do and to share. And the thing that I love the most about jazz in particular is um, there's always room to grow. There's always new things to learn. Um, There's always new levels of artistry to reach. And so it's something that I know that will be a part of my life for a very long time. And whether or not there could be a time where I perform less or I'm home more, you know, I can imagine that at some point. Um, But that journey, it's about my journey with the music. it's it's not about a profession. It's about something very personal, and it's just who I am. So, um, it's it's hard to imagine a life without that. Okay, I'm actually glad you said no because I actually like your stuff. But <laughs> if you had, if you could remove all the barriers, all the constraints, what would be your p- dream project, and who would be on it? Hi. First, I'm kind of doing it. Um, I feel like I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I'm very lucky to do that. I've been, um, I worked hard to get there and I also have been supported by some institutions that helped me to do that. So I feel that's one thing um, that, you know, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm happy where I am, but I would have loved to play with Wayne Shorter and meet him. Uh, I would love to meet and play with Herbie Hancock. Um, And I would love to meet and play with the masters in Brazil, uh, Gilberto Gil and Caetano Veloso. Those are my like dream, 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 you know, people to meet and collaborate with. Um, And another thing I would love to do without restriction is I would love to do some sort of public public art project or public singing project. Um, So if I didn't have to think about money or how I could make it work, I would love to do something that's 
just about healing and sound healing and in service to others. Um, and uh, maybe I'll do maybe I'll do something like that. Maybe you've given me a good idea. I have this grant from the Jerome Foundation, and I'm deciding what cool projects I want to try to do with it. Um, but really, my dream has always been to get to travel, get to be close to people, get to meet new people, and get to make music. And doing the work like what I've been doing in Cape Verde and what I will continue doing in um, different parts of especially the Portuguese speaking world, which I'm close to mm-hmm. is the same. And, and it's kind of the same as my approach to jazz. It's like immersing in something, getting to know the elders, the masters, learning something and sharing. And, uh, it's a privilege to, to make my life out of, out of that. Well, I'm jealous of you on so many levels. First of all, the fact that you speak Portuguese, you're a regular <laughs> in Brazil. Uh, if you were able to get a duet with like Gal Costa, I would forever be jealous of you. So <laughs> she passed away. So unfortunately. Oh, she did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's another one that people are going to make fun of me about. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, I would have put her right up there on the list. But, um, how long? Oh, yeah. now I got to look that up. Um, that's bad. I did not know that. Oh, well, another time I embarrass myself on my own show. No, no, no. (laughs) Well, Um, ma'am, could you tell the people your social media, your website, how to contact you, when to listen to your stuff? You guys can find me on, well, you can listen to the new album, Cape Verdean Blues, on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, everything. Um, If you would like to buy a digital copy or a physical copy of the CD, I also have vinyls. Vinyls just arrived. They're so beautiful. Um, They're on my Bandcamp page, kavitashaw.bandcamp.com. My Instagram and my Twitter are kantakavita, C-A-N-T-A-K-A-V-I-T-A. My Facebook is kavitashawmusic. And uh, my website is kavitashawmusic.com. And you can contact me there. You can sign up for my newsletter. So um, would be happy to hear from from you. Okay. Well, ma'am, third or fourth time is a charm. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Leander. (laughs) And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>